The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. It's just after 10pm on the 22nd of February 1946 at the fashionable Strand Palace Hotel in central London. In room 506, a man calling himself James Robert Cadogan Armstrong has brought a young woman, Pauline Brees, up for a nightcap. It's the couple's second date in three days, and things appear to be going well. They drank their way across London, starting at the Falstaff on Fleet Street and ending at the Brevet Club in Mayfair, a club for Royal Air Force men like Armstrong. However, at 10 p.m., the Brevet ran out of beer, a common problem affecting countless establishments throughout the country because of reduced supplies and high demand, all fallout from the recently concluded Second World War. It's been a successful day, and Armstrong is eager for it to continue. He asks Pauline to join him in his hotel room, and she agrees to stay for a quick drink. Her landlady doesn't like her coming home later than 11.30. Armstrong promises her she'll be home on time as he pours whiskey into a crystal tumbler. Offering one to Pauline, she declines. She doesn't like the stuff. Armstrong gulps his drink as Pauline looks out the window. Below, she sees the Strand busy with nightlife. Black cabs, buses, and groups headed for the Charing Cross tube station. With nowhere to sit, the couple perch on the edge of the double bed. Armstrong is too close for comfort for Pauline. She's nervous and uncomfortable. Suddenly, he begins kissing and groping her forcibly. She tries to pull away, but he doesn't respond. She's desperate to leave, and the feeling of entrapment overwhelms her. Pauline jumps up from the bed and makes for the door. She says it's time she leaves, but Armstrong says no and quickly grabs hold of her arm. She yelps as he twists it behind her back and pins her to the shut door. What are you doing? Pauline asks. Armstrong reportedly says he hates women and that he will make her do exactly what he wants her to do. White hot fear shoots through Pauline's body as she looks into the cold blue eyes of Armstrong. She wants to escape, but she's afraid to scream, fearful that it would only make him more violent. The next several minutes of Pauline's life is utter hell. He orders her to strip, but she refuses. Armstrong becomes enraged at this. He is wide-shouldered and built like a rugby player, an intimidating force. Pauline struggles against Armstrong. He throws her onto the bed, tries to remove her clothes. Then Armstrong hits Pauline on the head, knocking her out. Pauline awakens as the hotel room door opens and the assistant manager and the porter enter. She's face down on the bed, her hands tied behind her back. She twists her neck to see Armstrong, half naked, behind her. The staff demand to know what's going on. Guests have reported the screams. They feared a murder had taken place. Armstrong moves away from Pauline, dressing as the staff unties her. He's blasé about the matter when questioned and seemingly annoyed that management burst into his room. 
but straightens up at the threat of calling the police. Pauline tells the gentleman that Armstrong knocked her out and forced himself on her. The assistant manager is uncertain who to believe. Pauline's clothes aren't torn and there are no visible signs of a struggle. But the facts do not always speak for themselves. He believes Pauline is a sex worker and might be lying. The manager asks Pauline if she'd like him to call the police. She declines. She knows how the police treat victims of assault, turning the blame on them and asking humiliating questions. She just wants to get out as soon as she can. Despite the fear in Pauline's eyes, the management writes off the incident as an embarrassing situation for the couple, not anything serious. This could not be further from the truth. Little do the hotel staff know that James Robert Cadogan Armstrong is just an alias for this violent man. Soon, he will be dubbed the most dangerous criminal modern Britain has known. Pauline leaves the hotel lucky to be alive, but traumatized for life. In a few months, the man she knows as Armstrong's picture will be splashed across the front pages of every major newspaper. And Pauline will realize just how close she came to being the victim of a serial murderer known as the Lady Killer. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It's 2 p.m. on the 21st of June, 1946. A beautiful sunny day in the first summer since the end of the Second World War. Thousands flocked to the parks for reprieve. The Serpentine in Hyde Park was reopened for swimming, the first time since the war started. Throughout London, rebuilding efforts are underway to repair the devastation left behind by German bombers. The newly elected Labour government, led by Clement Attlee, is putting social welfare at the forefront of its agenda. After years of war, the country is finally healing. There is a deep sigh of relief across Britain, 
but this relief is about to be disrupted. Not by an outside force, but one from within. At the Pembridge Court Hotel, near Notting Hill Gate, Alice Wyatt, the assistant manager, is checking on a guest in room four. The woman, Mrs. Heath, hasn't left her room all day. No one answered the door at 9.10am when the chambermaid brought cups of tea for Mr. and Mrs. Heath, per Mr. Heath's request the previous night. The cleaner looked in on the couple at 11.20am and only saw Mrs. Heath asleep in bed. Her husband, Lieutenant Colonel Neville Heath, hasn't been seen today. The staff assume he has gone out and left his wife to sleep in. But by 2pm, Alice is worried something is wrong. She enters the room and is greeted by an unpleasant, sickly sweet odour. There, in bed, lies Mrs Heath with her back to the door. Mrs Heath doesn't respond to Alice's calls or her nudges, so Alice opens the curtains. Sunlight fills the room as she approaches the bed once more, but the light of day reveals something that makes her stomach drop. The woman in bed is not Mrs Heath. Alice recalls Mrs Heath to be a beautiful brunette with olive skin. This woman's blonde with fair skin. But that's not all. The stranger's face is a pale bluish grey and faint bruises are visible around her neck. Alice races to the office telephone and asks the operator to connect her to Scotland Yard. Come quick, she says. I think this woman is dead. Sergeant Frederick Averill of Notting Hill's F Division is the first officer on the scene arriving at 2.40pm. Checking the body, Averill can see bruises on the left side of the victim's face. Pulling back the bedclothes reveals the magnitude of the violence. The sheets are drenched in blood. There can be no doubt. This is murder. Within an hour, the hotel is packed with police officers from CID, dusting for prints and taking photographs of the crime scene. The wash basin in the corner of the room has traces of blood on it, as if someone had tried to wash away evidence. But the job was rushed. A single bloody fingerprint is still visible. In the room is divisional detective Reginald Spooner. He is set to lead the investigation along with Detective Inspector Shelley of Notting Hill's F Division. Spooner is a born and bred Londoner with a renowned cough because of his bad smoking habits. He's one of Scotland Yard's most tenacious detectives. Applying to become a police officer in 1924, Spooner was a careful and determined recruit. He shot through the ranks of Scotland Yard and British intelligence soon noticed his razor-sharp investigative skills. During the war, the Yard loaned him out to MI5, the British Secret Service. Now, he is stationed out of Hammersmith. Spooner and Symes examine the gut-wrenching scene. The dead woman lies naked on her back on the blood-stained bed. Her wounds reflect the killer's brutal savagery, a series of deep bite marks and abdominal tearing. Her head is angled towards the window, possibly positioned by the killer to make it look like she was sleeping peacefully. Her face and chest are clean. There's not a single drop or smear of blood, 
meaning the killer washed her before leaving, likely an attempt to destroy evidence. The unknown woman's feet are tied with a handkerchief and her arms are pinned under her. Detectives find bruising on her wrists, indicating her hands were tied behind her back, but the ligature's gone. Spooner tilts the body up, revealing deep lacerations. The poor woman's attacker had viciously whipped her 17 times on the back and nine times on the buttocks. The detectives question if this was a robbery that turned violent. It doesn't appear to be. There are no signs of a struggle in the room, nor did any witnesses come forward to say they heard anything suspicious or violent during the night. Furthermore, none of the victim's belongings appear to be missing. A white bracelet is found on the mantel shelf, floral earrings on the dressing table, and rings remain on the dead woman's fingers. A brown leather handbag is also found in the room, and inside is the victim's ID card, identifying her as Mrs. Marjorie Gardner, aged 33. She lives in Bramham Gardens, in Earl's Court. Why did she come here last night? Was she familiar with her killer? Spooner and Symes question the hotel staff. Lieutenant Colonel Neville Heath checked into the hotel on Sunday, June the 16th with a dark-haired woman who claimed to be his wife. There was nothing suspicious about the pair. Indeed, the hotel manager thought them to be a sweet couple upon their arrival. The following morning, they were seen happily cuddling in bed when the hotel waitress delivered them breakfast. The hotel manager admits she recognised Lieutenant Colonel Heath. He stayed there in November 1944 under the name James Cadogan Armstrong with a woman named Zeta Williams. Hotel records further confirm Heath had used the pseudonym Armstrong twice before at the hotel, but the staff offered no leads on where he or this supposed wife might be now. For Scotland Yard, tracking down the Heaths of paramount importance. That evening at the Hammersmith police station, Spooner collapses into his desk chair. He inhales on a half-smoked cigarette that dangles freely between his lips as he telephones the criminal records office at New Scotland Yard. Tapping the cigarette into an ash-covered copper tray and clearing his throat, Spooner listened intently to the officer on the other end of the line. He is told both Neville Heath and Marjorie Gardner are on the file. According to their records, Marjorie Gardner had been an artist by trade, but didn't make a stable income off her paintings and lived a bohemian lifestyle. Her addresses shifted between Earl's Court and Chelsea bedsits, and she was well known in the Chelsea and Kensington drinking scenes. For cash, when she didn't rely on family or friends, she occasionally worked as a film extra. At the time of her death, Marjorie was estranged from her husband, who in 1941 was hospitalized with a nervous condition. After he got out, he participated in several robberies and was sentenced to two years of hard labor, forcing Marjorie to live hand to mouth. Their marriage never recovered from this period. 
1945, Marjorie was arrested after a high-speed car chase around Hyde Park when the man she was riding with tried to escape arrest for stealing the car. No charges were pressed against Marjorie, who claimed that she didn't know the car was stolen. Marjorie is hardly a nefarious criminal. Her behaviour is as expected from the bohemian youth. Neville Heath, alias Armstrong, is another matter. Spooner hunches over his desk. The amber glow of his desk lamp illuminates his notepad as he scratches notes with a fountain pen. Heath's rap sheet is a mile long. His full name is Neville George Cleveley Heath. He lied about his military title. He's not a lieutenant colonel. In fact, the records show that on September the 20th, 1937, he was court-martialed by the Royal Air Force as a pilot officer. While serving in the RAF, he'd used fake checks to pay for his meals. When confronted, instead of handling the matter with the RAF authorities, he absconded and returned to Wimbledon, where service police arrested him for fraud and desertion. While held at Debden Aerodrome near Saffron Walden, Heath escaped and stole a superior's motor car to drive to London, where he parted. Heath was arrested and taken to court. His desertion charge was dropped. The barrister argued that Heath only left on impulse because of financial difficulties. However, he was guilty of absences without leave, escaping whilst under arrest for desertion and stealing his superior officer's motor car. But Heath didn't learn his lesson. Between 1937 and 1946, Neville Heath was arrested several more times for fraud and false impersonation. In December 1945, in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, Heath was court-martialed yet again. During the Second World War, he used the false identity of James Cadogan Armstrong to join the South African Air Force. Using his false ID, he transferred back to the RAF via the SAAF. For this, he was charged with 11 crimes, from fraud to illegally wearing military decorations without authority and further absences without leave. Heath was deported back to England in January 1946 and is now registered as living with his parents in Wimbledon. Detective Symes escorts Marjorie's body back to the morgue for an autopsy while Detective Spooner races to Wimbledon to track Neville Heath. Pulling up to the address in a black Wolsey, Spooner finds the man's parents at home, but Neville's gone. They do not know where he is, nor are they aware of their son's involvement with any women. But they allow the detectives to search their son's bedroom. Spooner finds Heath's address book with the names of 300 women and four whips. Spooner shudders as he recalls the deep lashes on the dead woman's body. Could one of these whips be the instrument of torture that was used on poor Marjorie? He takes the evidence back to the station. Later that night, Spooner reads the autopsy report. It details the extensive injuries to Marjorie's head, chest and abdomen. Tellingly, the report confirms that a whip or riding crop was used on her as the diamond weaved pattern had imprinted onto her flesh. There's no doubt for Spooner. Neville Heath is his man. The following day, 
a warrant for Neville George Cleveley Heath is issued. A manhunt is now underway. Newspapers across Britain are filled with coverage of Marjorie Gardner's vicious murder and the manhunt for Heath. Heath's photograph, however, is only issued to the local authorities, not the press. This is a tactical decision on Spooner's part. He believes that revealing Heath's appearance to the public could compromise the case should it reach trial, and he doesn't want the killer to walk free on a technicality. With tips flooding into Scotland Yard due to the press coverage, Spooner and Symes take to the streets of Kensington. They retrace Marjorie's movements the night before she died. She'd been seen at the Panama Club, just a stone's throw from South Kensington Underground Station. The club's registry had Neville Heath's signature as Lieutenant Colonel Heath and Friends. Witnesses corroborated Heath had been there with Marjorie, dancing and drinking into the night. For where Neville is, no one can or will say. Scotland Yard's inability to find a trail makes Spooner fear Heath may have fled London. It's the morning of Monday, June the 24th, just days after Marjorie Gardner was found viciously slain in the hotel. A light mist moves its way through London. At Scotland Yard HQ, detectives are scrambling to find Neville Heath. He's been in the wind for three days and they're running out of leads. District Superintendent Tom Barrett sits at his desk at Scotland Yard, sipping coffee and sorting through a pile of letters. His tedious work, but one letter, shocks him out of the monotony of the task. It's from Neville Heath. Barrett carefully slices the envelope open and gingerly removes a handwritten letter. He begins to read. Sir, I feel it is my duty to inform you of certain facts in connection with the death of Mrs. Gardner at Notting Hill Gate. I booked into the hotel last Sunday, but not with Mrs. Gardner, whom I met for the first time during the week. I had drinks with her on Friday evening, and whilst I was with her, she met an acquaintance with whom she was obliged to sleep. Mrs. Gardner asked if she could use my hotel room until two o'clock, and intimated that if I returned after that, I might spend the remainder of the night with her. I gave her my keys and told her to leave the hotel door open. It must have been about 3am when I returned to the hotel and found her in the condition of which you are aware. I realised that I was in an invidious position and rather than notify the police, I packed my belongings and left. Since then I have been in several minds whether to come forward or not, but in view of the circumstances I have been afraid to. I can give you a description of the man. He was aged approximately 30 dark hair, black, with a small moustache, height about five foot nine, slim build. His name was Jack, and I gathered that he was a friend of Mrs. Gardner's of some long standing. I have the instrument with which Mrs. Gardner was beaten, and am forwarding this to you today. You will find my fingerprints on it, but you should also find others as well. Signed, N.G.C. Heath. The instrument Heath writes about is never sent, and he does not come forward. It seems Heath is toying with the police, or trying to create an alibi. It's the morning of July the 3rd, two weeks since Marjorie Gardner's murder. 
Unbeknownst to Detective Spooner, his handsome, blue-eyed lady killer is now prowling the seaside streets of Bournemouth. During the war, this peaceful resort town became a military zone. The seafront was shut to the public, the beach a minefield strewn with barbed wire. Anti-aircraft guns sat on the flat roofs, ready to take down enemy planes. With the war over, holidaymakers have rushed to the reopened seafront, staying at the five-star hotels, lounging in the sun, eating ice cream cones and sipping fizzy drinks. The local cinemas played Raymond Chandler's The Blue Dahlia, starring Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd. One such visitor is 21-year-old Doreen Marshall from Brentford, just outside of London. She's a discharged servicewoman from the Women's Royal Naval Service and a guest at the Norfolk Hotel on Richmond Hill. Doreen has been in Bournemouth for several days, sent here by her parents to recover from the flu. The fresh air has done wonders, and now that she's feeling better, the young woman hopes to meet some new people and enjoy herself. Doreen watches a Punch and Judy show on the promenade. The small audience erupts with laughter as puppets bicker and fight. At the show's close, a blonde-haired man with blue eyes stops Doreen. He swears he met her previously. Though she doesn't remember him, she finds him charming and handsome and is pleased to make his acquaintance. He introduces himself as Group Captain Rupert Brooke, but insists she calls him Bobby. Taken with a charming soldier, Doreen and Bobby spend the afternoon together at the Tollard Hotel Lounge, where Bobby is a guest. The conversation is easy, and the two seem to get along instantly. For Doreen, after days alone, this chance meeting is exactly what she needed. So when Bobby asks her to dinner that night, she instantly says yes. Little does she know, this will cost her her life. It's the morning of July the 5th at the Bournemouth Police Station. The police receive a call from Frank McInnes, the manager of the Norfolk Hotel. The operator passes the phone to Detective Constable Souter, who listens intently as McInnes explains that one of his guests is missing. Doreen Marshall was last seen two nights ago on the 3rd of July, when the night porter had called her a taxi to take her up the road to the Tollard Royal for dinner. Her possessions were still in her room, her bed was undisturbed, and she has 20 pounds in the hotel safe. Suta takes her description. Doreen wore a lemon-colored fleece coat with a glass fob watch affixed to her lapel, pearl earrings, and a matching necklace. Under her coat, she wore a black silk frock dress. She was stylishly dressed for a night out. Suter agrees to look into the matter at once. After hanging up, McInnes calls the Tollard Royal. He tells the manager that Doreen had supposedly dined there yesterday evening and asks if inquiries can be made. It doesn't take long for the staff of the Tollard Royal to confirm that Doreen Marshall had been there for dinner. They also report she was with Group Captain Rupert Brooke and was last seen leaving the hotel after 10pm. It's Saturday, July the 6th, at the Bournemouth Police Station. Since the hotel reported Doreen missing, Detective Constable Souter telephoned her parents to check if she had gone home. Distraught, 
they confirmed she is not with them and agreed to come to Bournemouth at once. Locally, police begin to canvass the area for leads, but so far nothing has turned up. Detective Souter sits at his desk, fraught with worry. Things like this just don't happen in his friendly seaside town. Suddenly the phone rings, and he answers immediately, hoping it will be a tip as to Doreen's whereabouts. The man on the other end of the line is Group Captain Rupert Brooke. He tells Suter the manager of the Tollard Royal Hotel confronted him about the identity of his dinner date the other night. Brooke confirmed it to be Doreen Marshall and is shocked to hear she's missing. He claims he wants to help the police in any way he can. To Suter, Brooke sounds well-educated and genuinely willing to aid the investigation. Brooke says he is at the Alum Chine Beach should Suter care to join him and he will tell the detective everything he knows. Suter is quick to decline the offer and orders Brooke to come to the station immediately for questioning. There's a moment's hesitation for Brooke. Static crackles over the line, but he agrees to come in. At 5.30pm, Brooke enters the police station wearing RAF sunglasses. Suter greets the witness with a firm handshake. Suter notes Brooke is built like a rugby player, with a square jaw and wide shoulders. He's handsome and friendly, but there's something odd about him. He doesn't remove his sunglasses, even when inside. Suter later recalls, his dress did not tally with his station in life. Brooke's shirt is buttoned to the top without a tie. The man also looks strangely familiar to Suter, but he can't quite put his finger on where he's seen him before. Leading Brooke into the sergeant's office, the men take a seat opposite each other. A warm breeze blows through the open window. Suter shows a picture of Doreen to Brooke, and Brooke confirms it is the woman he dined with a few days ago. Brooke says he met Doreen on the promenade, spent the afternoon with her, and the pair ate at his hotel. At midnight, she went to walk home, and he escorted her along the pavilion and seafront. She said she was busy over the next couple of days and would call him Sunday. Brooke also mentioned that Doreen told him she had plans with an American soldier, implying he was a lover. Brooke confirms he did not go all the way to her hotel and left Doreen in the gardens in central Bournemouth before returning to his hotel room. Detective Souter asks why the hotel porter did not see him return after leaving with Doreen. Brooke laughs. He claims he played a joke on the porter, with whom he had become friendly since his arrival. Brooke apparently climbed up a ladder outside where building works were being done. So when the porter made his rounds between 4 and 4.30, he was surprised to find him asleep inside his room. This means his whereabouts are unaccounted for between midnight and 4am. Suter casually nods, taking notes, masking his suspicions with a polite smile. Suddenly there's a knock at the door. The desk clerk says Mr. Marshall, Doreen's father, is downstairs. 
Suter concludes the interview and leads Brooke downstairs, taking him into the inquiry office where Doreen's father and older sister, Joan, are waiting. Suter introduces Brooke as the man who was with Doreen the night she was last seen. Brooke's face drains of colour and grows visibly shaken when he sees Joan. She's the spitting image of Doreen. He tries to tell Mr. Marshall not to worry, that Doreen is likely with her American friend. But this only provokes more worry in Mr. Marshall. Doreen is not the kind of girl to run off with a strange man. More than that, something in his gut tells him Brooke knows something about Doreen's disappearance. Joan has a similar feeling. She asks point blank, why didn't you see her home? Brooke only shrugs his shoulders. This flippant response sickens Joan. She instantly suspects Brooke was involved and fears her sister is dead. Suter observes a change in Brooke's demeanor. Something about the marshals, notably Joan, has made him uncomfortable. The penny drops for Suter. He asks Brooke, Isn't your name Heath? Brooke says, No. You look like the man wanted by Scotland Yard, Suter insists. I've been told that, Brooke replies. This statement makes the detective sure that Brooke is not who he claims to be. The police did not release any photos of Neville Heath to the public. No one could possibly have confused Brooke with a wanted man. Suter is now sure he has found Marjorie Gardner and possibly Doreen Marshall's killer. When Brooke cannot provide identification, they detain him at the station. It's time to contact the team at Scotland Yard. It's after 6pm in London. Detective Spooner, smoking a cigarette, rummages through a mountain of letters from people claiming to have spotted Heath. The trail goes from Sussex to parts of Wales. All of it is useless. He crumples a letter and adds it to the heaping pile at the base of his wastebasket. The phone rings and Spooner answers gruffly, expecting another false tip. Detective Constable Souter from Bournemouth Police Station is on the other end of the line. Excitedly, he explains that he believes they've apprehended Neville Heath. Spooner orders the Wolsey fueled and telephones Detective Symes at Division F, ordering him to the Hammersmith station at once. At 10.40pm, Spooner and Detective Symes peel out and begin the 100-mile journey to Bournemouth. It's 1.30am. Spooner and Symes arrive at the Bournemouth police station where Suter catches them up. During their drive, Suter has made more discoveries. He found a return train ticket that belonged to Doreen in the man he believes to be Heath's pocket and a cloakroom ticket issued at Bournemouth station. His officers retrieved a suitcase from the cloakroom, which is given to Spooner and Symes for immediate search. Attached to it are three leather luggage labels with the names Captain N.G.C. Heath, Major N.G.C. Heath, and the name J.R.C. Armstrong. 
Looking over the tags, Spooner instantly recognizes the name Armstrong as one of the aliases Heath used at the Pembridge Court Hotel in Notting Hill Gate. Inside the suitcase, Spooner removes a blue scarf stained with blood and dried snot. Chillingly, at the bottom of the case, there is a bloody whip. Spooner and Symes share a knowing look. They recall the whip marks on the corpse of Marjorie Gardner and the autopsy report confirming them. Spooner also remembers the whips he discovered in Neville Heath's room in Wimbledon. By 2 a.m., Spooner and Symes begin to search Heath's room at the Tollard Royal. The detectives discover nearly 50 handkerchiefs, most of which are stained with lipstick. Spooner also finds a knotted handkerchief that's been cut. It's dirty with blood and soil. Searching Heath's coat, Spooner makes yet another incriminating discovery. A single faux pearl, presumably from the necklace Doreen Marshall wore the night they had dinner. With all this evidence now on his side, Detective Spooner confronts Heath at the station. The grizzled detective sits across from the blonde-haired, blue-eyed man. Heath won't look Spooner in the eyes. He just stares at the surface of the table that separates them. Heath knows he has nowhere else to run. The evidence Spooner has is damning. Now all he needs is a confession. Without looking up, Spooner's suspect admits that he is Neville Heath and adds he has information about the murder of Marjorie Gardner. Finally, the hunt for the lady killer has come to an end. At 8am on Sunday the 7th of July, Neville Heath is arrested and Spooner and Symes drive him back to London to await trial. Spooner is back in London questioning Heath about Marjorie Gardner, but Doreen is still missing without any leads. That, however, is about to change. The same day Heath was arrested, a local cake maker named Kathleen Evans took her dog on a walk in a wooded area just off the beach. There, she noticed a swarm of flies attracted to something hidden beneath the rhododendron bushes. Initially, Kathleen thought nothing of it, assuming it to be a dead animal, until the next day, when Doreen's picture was featured in the newspaper. On Monday the 8th of July, Kathleen retraces her steps, venturing back into the wooded area where she saw the swarm of flies the day before. The sound of buzzing lets her know that she is nearby. Coming up to the bushes, her senses are hit with the stench of rotten flesh. She swats flies away as she nervously pulls the branches aside. Her worst fears are confirmed. There lies the naked, bludgeoned and whipped body of Doreen Marshall. She leaves at once to alert the police. With the body, authorities find Doreen's broken pearl necklace. Only one pearl from the strand is missing, the one found in Neville Heath's pockets. The authorities recover Doreen's body, and Neville Heath is charged with her murder. In the wake of Heath's arrest and charge for the murder of Marjorie Gardner and Doreen Marshall, other women begin to realize how narrowly they escaped Heath. Pauline Brees, who Heath attempted to rape back in February, 
is sick to her stomach when she sees the familiar face in the newspaper and memories of that horrible night come flashing back. Another mystery is also solved in the aftermath of Heath's arrest. Back in June at the Pembridge Court Hotel in Notting Hill Gate, the hotel staff told Spooner that Heath had another woman with him with dark hair and olive skin. With Heath all over the news, the mysterious woman comes forward. Her name is Yvonne Simmons, a 21-year-old woman Heath met in London. That night, Heath promised to marry Yvonne and took her back to the Pembridge Court Hotel, where he checked her in as Mrs. Heath on June the 16th, days before Heath would bring Marjorie to the same hotel and murder her. Yvonne left Heath the following morning to return to her parents' home in Worthing, West Sussex. Before Heath went to Bournemouth, he visited Yvonne at her parents' home to assure her the newspaper had got it all wrong. He had nothing to do with the murder and claimed that it was a friend of his to whom he'd lent his room for the night. Heath assured Yvonne he would clear up the matter at once. She was in love and wished to believe her new fiancé. So it came as quite the shock when, weeks later, after hearing nothing from Heath, Yvonne saw him in the paper, arrested and charged with multiple murders. Spooner knows Yvonne Simmons will be a vital witness during the trial. Neville Heath is put on trial for the murder of Marjorie Gardner on September the 24th, 1946. While Heath was charged for the murder of Doreen Marshall, her death was not the focus of the proceedings. Heath's counsel attempts to prove that he is insane to reduce his crimes to manslaughter. But after evaluations, Heath is determined to be a psychopath and a sadist, but not insane. Throughout the trial, Heath exhibits no remorse for his crimes. To him, these women were simply objects to use and toss aside. After closing statements, the jury deliberates for less than half an hour. To the relief of Detective Spooner and women across Britain, Neville Heath is found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. In Heath's last letter to his parents, he writes, My only regret at leaving the world is that I have been damned unworthy of you both. Wednesday the 16th of October 1946, at Pentonville Prison, in front of a crowd of 3,000 people, Heath is marched to his death. The hangman's noose is tied around his neck. Waiting for the executioner to pull the lever, Heath says, Come on boys, let's get on with it. At the time of his death, Neville George Cleveley Heath is regarded in the Daily Mail as the most dangerous criminal modern Britain has known and in the news of the world as the most atrocious murderer in modern times. Madame Tussauds will eventually have a wax figure of him installed in the House of Horrors. Neville Heath, the lady killer, would go down as one of the most vicious murderers in British history. If not for the dedicated work of Scotland Yard and the sharp-eyed police down in Bournemouth, it's possible that Neville Heath might never have been caught. As for Detective Spooner, 
he continued to have a prestigious career within Scotland Yard. Neville Heath was by far his most celebrated conviction, but he went on to have many more and continued to be recognized for his hard work. In 1954, he was appointed head of Scotland Yard's Flying Squad, a branch of the Serious and Organized Crime Command, and in 1958 was appointed deputy commander. When Spooner died in 1963, over 1,000 officers attended his funeral. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In August 1860, a wealthy, miserly landlady is slaughtered in her own home. But with no witnesses and plenty of suspects, can the detectives of Scotland Yard find out who killed Mary Emsley? A murder so perplexing that even the creator of the great sleuth Sherlock Holmes couldn't solve the mystery. Was justice done? Or was the wrong man hanged? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Luke Coons. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Bain and Dory McCauley.